0: Since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, global health systems have been challenged like never before. As time and resources were directed towards responding to the virus, it was the dedication of healthcare workers that kept services running. Amongst the uncertainty, our hardworking Queensland clinicians have continued their pursuit of excellence, innovating and adapting the way they work to ensure consumers always receive the best care possible. To them, the pandemic was an opportunity to learn and grow and to ensure healthcare delivery continues to evolve to the ever-changing landscape. Because if we've learned anything from the last two years, it is that things will always change and our clinicians will always rise to the occasion. Few people could have predicted at the start of the pandemic that we'd have multiple vaccines in the market and the global community would be looking towards reopening. While not as high profile as the vaccines, these projects have worked through and learnt from the disruption to explore opportunities for improvement and ensure our health services continue to evolve.
1: It's a little bit unfair, but in safety and quality, we always get compared to the aviation industry. And this is where it started for them back in the day. And really not a lot of concern about safety but just seeing if we could do it. Not a lot, just a few feet off the ground. Not a lot of support, just one brother. Down the bottom in the, the front of the photo there is their, their maintenance equipment, which is a hammer and some nails and some string. But fast forward a few years, and just a few years, and we are taking on far more complex and chaotic adventures. Indeed. For a brand like Qantas, their whole performance is linked to safety. And when you start adding in things like efficiencies, performance, deadlines, then you start to realize that aviation has become far more complex than ever before. And it's very easy for us to think about computer-assisted flight as a convenience for the pilots so that they can have a coffee and and enjoy the in-flight entertainment. But indeed, the aviation industry worked out some time ago that for the pilots and aircrew to perform at their very best, they needed computer support. This is a concept called coffin corner, where as you flight altitude in a 747, the maximum speed for which the aircraft will start to fall apart and the minimum speed, which is where you drop out of the air because you've stalled, are very, very close together. Senior pilots say you can work in that environment for about 10 minutes if all your energy is devoted to that one task of finding that safe airspeed. But any other task that you are confronted with, then you actually can't do it. And for me, there's a lot of synergies about now how the pressure is forced upon our teams to work in very complex and chaotic environments. And we actually don't have any computer support for them at the moment.
2: Comparing that analogy of patient safety and comparing it to the emergency department, what we have found after consultation with all the clinicians from almost 16 emergency departments is that they need some clinical decision tools to support during the management of sepsis, which, which almost presents in an insider's way masking the signs and symptoms of other disease. Add to that complexity is there's no significant biomarkers at this stage. And add to that another complexity is especially at digital hospitals where people have, to, where clinicians have to work between two different systems, paper-based systems, as well as digital system. So we thought, okay, what, what should we do for the digital hospitals? So we embarked on a journey for the digital sepsis program. And one of the things that we wanted to do is, obviously, management of sepsis lies into different components, but the first thing that we wanted to tackle is recognition of sepsis in a timely manner. And deliver a data product that produces sepsis prediction algorithms using machine learning, obviously going through extracting and cleaning Queensland IMR data from the mirror, and analysis of prediction model using patient simulation. There was a lot of engagement during the whole process with the clinicians because we wanted to develop a product which is clinically driven, as well as the clinicians are ready to accept. And obviously the last part was the framework and methodology for implementing algorithm into an IMR test environment. So this is a little bit of a roadmap, what we took. Now, the reason why I put this uh, on the slide is, as you can see, we started somewhere in March 2020, and then we moved across. But starting the planning, getting the right project officers, recruiting, we almost had all around nine months of the whole project time frame. Now, this is just one part of the project. And I remember walking into one of these meetings and... Previously, we had decided to do it as a quality improvement project, take the sepsis algorithm, test it against the Queensland mirror data. And one day, when when I walked into this meeting, Dr. Lane had this enlightening moment. He said, if this is the first time we are doing in Queensland, testing a sepsis algorithm, why are we doing a quality improvement? We should do it a research, we should get it published. And I said, okay, all right, being a project officer, let's, let's do it, shouldn't be rocket science. So then came the journey. And as you can see, as imagined, we thought, okay, we consulted a few people. We thought, okay, we'll, we'll get all the ethics. We'll get approval from data custodians for the IMA data, OSLAB data, Pathology Queensland data, do the Public Health Act, consult with the RGOs, get the data, and kick on. And our timeline would be something similar to what's been shown, a smooth line, okay? But when we actually started the work, This is what, and these lines are basically email communication, phone communications, and everything. And this is how our journey looked as done, basically. And hats off to all these people who were working in different sites and working with different systems with the best of intentions to help us out within that specific time frame. And still, they had to meet the requirements, so I don't blame them. Anyone sitting out over there thinking of research, your timeline is going to look something like this, okay? One step forward, two step backwards. So just a little bit of cautious over there. And even after getting approval at the highest level, at the Director General's delegate approval, we still were having difficulties accessing the data, getting it to our Catherine system. After doing all those things, obviously we had a large amount of data. Around, we had around 524,000 patients with 1.13 million encounters. When we looked at sepsis, according to the ICD-10 coding, we had roughly around 11,000 of cases of sepsis. As we all know, the how good is our ICD coding? Not just nationally, internationally. So we looked at other classification. We looked at sepsis-3 definitions, and we had around, roughly around 26,27,000 27,000 of sepsis patients' encounters. And the reason why I put these numbers is this algorithm has been tested. Just want to tell that the robustness of the data that we had, and this has been tested over robust data. And the median age we found was for subsistence was around 64, and the mortality was in line with, with the literature around 10%. Now, the next slide talks about decision trees and eating pizza. And I think Dr. Lane is the best person to talk to regarding eating pizzas.
1: So, so when you start... When you start this journey, you don't know anything about artificial intelligence or machine learning, so you learn very quickly. And this was a key moment for us. So this slide is basically machine learning. And when you understand it, at the basis of machine learning, which is a form of artificial intelligence, it's just decision trees. The system that we used was a thing called LightGBM. GBM. It's made by Microsoft. It's free and open source. And what it does is it lets you make decision trees You can run them over and over and over again, hundreds of thousands of times. In this software, the decision tree that is the weakest, that's what the computer focuses it on to let the algorithm learn. So how do you take the weakest performer and make it the strongest? And you can see that you make all these little leaves, and that forms a big tree. And then Rudy comes along and he codes that. So we started with a man-made algorithm. And we evaluated that, and then we started letting the machine learner create its own algorithm. When you do this, you need to put together a pretty decent computer. We named our computer Catherine, after Catherine Goebel, the African-American mathematician who put NASA into space. And now and Catherine is three gaming computers plugged together, and two big wicked graphics cards. She's not quite as sexy as the Hollywood actresses, but she's very powerful for her size, and she had enough space and and RAM and so forth for us to do the job. Although there are some very funny stories about Rudy shutting down radiology at Townsville because he was using all their computing space. (laughs) So what do we do? This is is our sort of summary side, folks. So folks, down the bottom, you've got a timeline there where a patient may start in the community, they go to triage, they're admitted to the ED, we have this trigger window, where we've set up for our algorithm to work at the moment. And then I didn't want the algorithm predicting sepsis as the person went to ICU. So we said, well, we'll stop giving the algorithm information two days before the patient meets these sepsis-3 criteria. What you can see up the top there in the, in the orangey-yellow or is actually how our data flows into the system. So most data is generated by, about patients at the start of their admission. So we've artificially created this trigger window. During this trigger window, Catherine is working continuously to predict sepsis using artificial intelligence. And we found with our our study group that we were able to predict sepsis 48 hours before sepsis three criteria were met with a sensitivity of 94% and a specificity of 92%. What separates these results from most of the literature is this gap because we're doing it far quicker than most of the published literature. We made this gap because there's this thing in in machine learning called overfitting. Basically, if you give the computer a result, it'll pick the right result. So we wanted to make sure that Catherine had to do a work and predict it two days before the patient met the sepsis criteria. There's another thing in machine learning called waiting. And by waiting, we can adjust the specificity of the tool. And so if our clinicians decided that they wanted a more specific algorithm, then we can do that, but you notice that the sensitivity drops off compared to the one I showed you before. But we can certainly adjust the performance of the algorithm to meet clinician needs. Now, our algorithm has about 120 features, so these are elements we've taken from the digital data, whether it be EMR, pathology, OSLab, hibiscus data. And I've got a big list there of all the features. To the side here is this thing called gain, which really is about how often those features are actually included in the algorithms by the machine learner. And I'm going to show you the top couple. And as an intensivist, this was quite mind-blowing. So for Catherine to decide that someone has sepsis, for her, albumin and heart rate is far more important than anything else. She also thinks that platelet count is more important than neutrophils and white cell count. And for Catherine, she doesn't care what your temperature is. So temperature has zero gain in our system. Which again, as an intensivist, is quite mind-blowing. Rudy came to me and he said, Paul, what's the association between hypertension and sepsis? And I said, Rudy, I don't know, there's not much, normally when I see them they're really hypotensive. And he said, Paul, 25% of our patients become hypertensive before they become hypotensive, which of course makes sense when you think about it. But our current safety systems only detect someone once their blood pressure is crashing. We haven't had time to look at all this stuff yet, but it's quite amazing. We can create these patient simulations, and this was really important for us. So you can see here the purple line is when the home team took blood cultures which we think is a pretty good indication that the doctors and nurses are thinking of severe infection. About 50 hours before that, Catherine had already started to trigger that she thought the patient had sepsis. What's really important about this work is not that we're doing work with sepsis, but any condition that we look after that's based upon decision trees, we can do this on. So it's certainly a, a very prime model for the broader deteriorating patient piece. And the literature is full of other, you know, people doing work on other conditions as well. The other important thing is we have four years of cleaned, processed, structured EMR data sitting on three gaming computers that we can do research on. Thank you.
0: As always, thank you for listening to our podcast and taking the time to learn about the wonderful work of Queensland's frontline clinicians. To continue the conversation, head on over to Facebook and let us know of any pockets of excellence you think deserve to be showcased. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Clinical Excellence Queensland.